Amen. All right, good morning. You guys are bad at saying good morning today. I say that out of love and rebuke, I promise. Um, so we are getting back into our series. And we started last week. If you missed last week, uh, make sure you, you catch up. Um, because last week we really just introed the book and got to look at the Gospel of Mark and kind of what Mark's thesis is. And that is answering the key question of who is Jesus. And this week we're going to begin that journey of answering that key question of who this Jesus is. So let's jump right in. Mark 1. We're going to start right from the beginning again. Since last week we only got through one verse. Welcome to Reach Montreal. Ready? Let's go. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written, so now he's quoting something in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, look, pay attention. I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's the key word. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. All right, so what's happening here? Well, there's a vital backdrop to understand what Mark is up to here and what he's quoting. So often in the New Testament, you'll see authors say, as it was written in, and then they'll quote something. What they're trying to do is they're trying to pull something from the past, maybe a promise or a motif or something that was very, very significant from the past. They're trying to pull it into the present to show us that something about that is more fully being fulfilled or filled out, right, or fleshed out. And here's what Mark is doing here with this specific thing. The vital backdrop here is that Israel is in exile, right? So Israel has no king. They have no kingdom. They have no real marker of being a nation at all. They don't have a national identity. They haven't for almost 600 years. And they're just a province of Rome. And the Jews as a people group are a cultural and religious minority in this big monster called the Roman Empire. So they're not free, they're not citizens, and they're very much displaced from all of the promises of the past. All of the things that they looked to for God to say, this is what makes you a people. This is what your identity is built on. That's gone. So everything that they would normally hang their identity on, that is stripped from them, and they are totally and utterly displaced at a national level, but also at a personal and spiritual level. So what are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for a restoration of that. They're waiting for a new homeland. They're waiting for a return to an identity that's rooted in a place and a covenant with God, specifically in the presence of God returning to the people, right? So that, that you got to understand the hunger of the people at this time. And secondly, there has not been a single prophet for 400 years. So if you notice that for us, it's easy to turn from Malachi at the end of the Old Testament straight to Matthew, right? Like that's one page for us. But that one page is known as the intertestamental period or a period of silence. And it's 400 years between the last prophet speaking through Malachi and now this. So something's happening now, something new is happening. And what Mark quotes here is really interesting because he says, as the prophet Isaiah says, but he doesn't just talk about from Isaiah here. He actually does a little bit of a mashup of three different texts in one. And often in the ancient world, that's what you would do. You would almost use like one uh, voice and use that as a container and then pack other voices in. So you almost have to like um, come in, like deconstruct it, pull it apart. So what he does here, he's not just quoting from Isaiah, although he is, he's quoting from Moses from Exodus 23, Isaiah from Isaiah 40, and from Malachi chapter 3. And so he's doing this, he's pulling these three different strands, these threefold promise together and saying something is happening in light of what was promised. 
Now, just to show you what Isaiah 40 does say, Isaiah 40, very interestingly, if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, it's very long, right? So the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, it's the prophet speaking to Israel before exile, before they go into exile. And Isaiah's warning them, saying, listen, you know, you know your history. So if you guys just go back to Judges, like we know this cycle, right? We know how this ends. And Isaiah's warning them, saying, no, no, don't, stop, stop doing this. This is going to end in exile. This is going to end in being displaced. This is going to end with God taking his presence away from you. And then Isaiah 40 to the end of the book, it's Isaiah speaking to Israel in exile. And that's what Mark is doing here. He's taking the prophetic voice that spoke to Israel in exile and has not spoken for 400 years. And he's saying something new is being spoken. There's a new way being made. And Isaiah is saying there's a, there's a, a highway being like built in the desert, right? There's a highway very quickly being built in the desert so we can get out of exile. Now, being in Montreal, we have no idea what construction quickly means. But in, in, in Isaiah 40, he's saying it's almost like immediately there's gonna be a highway in the desert all of a sudden. All of a sudden, it's going to come, and we're going to be out of exile. God will be revealed. God's glory will return to you as the people, and all flesh will see it together. That's what's really interesting. Not just you, Israel, but all flesh, all Jews, Gentiles, everyone, socioeconomic class, religious background, non-religious background. What is about to take place is going to be on display for everyone, all people. So Mark's taking it and he's tweaking and he's saying that promise, that was a shadow pointing forward to the substance of what we're about to see happen here. God is on his way. Then in Malachi 3, very similarly, 400 years before Mark is on the scene, the Old Testament ends with this promise. I'm sending my messenger and he'll prepare the way before me and the Lord himself will suddenly come to his temple. But I'll send Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord. After this long, long period of silence, Mark is standing saying as clear and as loud as he possibly can that God is coming, that God is coming and has come. Now watch verse four through eight. Ready? That's the, that's the setup. That's the alley to the oop. Ready? So that's the alley. God's coming. And then watch this, verse four. So John appeared. You're like, oh, okay. So it's John, John's God. All right, let's see what's, what's, what this, what, what is, what's going on here, right? John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, in exile, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea, so all the rural bumpkins, and all Jerusalem, all the urbanites, were going out to him and being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate grasshoppers dipped in a honey balsamic reduction. So basically he's from the plateau. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That was the job of a slave. I have baptized you with water. That's what I'm doing. But he will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So now right away, Mark, again, brilliant. We thought, okay, so God's coming. He's gonna tell us who this is, what this looks like. And then we hear about John and John's like, oh yeah, it's not me, <laughs> right? It's not me, it's not this. It's something else, it's someone else, but I'm here to prepare the way. And so what happens here, John shows up and he is the, prophes the prophesied messenger, the voice coming to announce the Messiah. And notice where he is. He's in the desert. He's in the wilderness. He's in the symbolic place of exile. 
Now, we can't miss this because many Old Testament scholars identify the exile as the foundational meta-narrative of the whole Old Testament. It's everywhere. There is not a book in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi that does not talk about the motif of the exile and the motif of the wilderness. It's very, very, very important. Why is it important? Because always the wilderness backdrop is significant for us to understand the role of prophets. Why? Well, because the wilderness represented a place where God was not. The wilderness was a desolate place. It looked a little bit like this. Like sometimes we think about wilderness, but think about this. Like we're not, like, we're not just talking like go up to Tremblant because you're in the sticks now. You know, like, like we're talking the wilderness. We're talking things go to the wilderness to die, right? Nothing flourishes in the wilderness. And that's what's happening here. But also prophets spoke for God but in exile, God's presence was not there. So exile always represented separation, displacement. The wilderness represented disorder, chaos, death, a death of everything. And there's a thread all throughout scripture, if you follow it, this is where like our hyperlinking helps us. But if you just pay attention to the thread of exile, right from the very first pages in Genesis, Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. Well, what's the garden represent? It's the cosmic temple of where God is. It's where God dwells. It's where everything that is good that comes from God is there. And they're exiled from the garden. That's the first exile. So they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply in the garden. And the whole plan of God for image bearers was to represent him and do what? Be fruitful and multiply. So this small garden was supposed to just continually duplicate and multiply and spread across all the wilderness and, and be fruitful, but you can't do that in exile, right? So they're exiled from God's presence from the garden. Cain is exiled after killing his brother. Abraham is called into the wilderness from his homeland to be in covenant with God. Jacob flees into exile to get away from Esau. Joseph is exiled as a slave in Egypt. Moses wanders around in the wilderness. And finally, Israel as a people, as a community, get to the promised land, which is always spoken about as a new garden. It's the new land flowing with being fruitful and multiplying and milk and honey, all things good, rest, we're back home. But we know how that goes. Well, they don't stay in that land, do they? They don't stay in the new mini Eden. They don't stay in the new garden. They get exiled from that, specifically nationally, at a national level, exiled by first the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, and finally Rome. And that's where Israel is. So Israel, the audience, what, what Mark is getting at here, this would just pop for them. All of this would flood into their minds as he is announcing something new happening. What he's saying to the people of Israel is he is saying there is a new exodus, that there is a new creative moment, that there is a new identity, that there is a new garden, that there is a new homeland, that there is a new way to come into relationship with God. And Jeremiah, the prophet in the sixth century, captures this really well. Watch this. Jeremiah 4. And I looked at the earth. He's speaking about exile. Watch this. And it was empty and formless. Watch the language. Watch how this is an undoing of everything in Genesis. I looked at the heavens and there was no light. I looked at the mountains and the hills and they trembled and they shook. I looked and all the people were gone. The image bearers were gone. They were exiled. All the birds of the sky had flown away. I looked and the fertile fields had become a desert. The towns lay in ruins, crushed by the Lord's anger. This is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined, but I will not destroy it completely. What is Jeremiah doing there? Well, he's showing us that exile into the wilderness, exile into the desert is an actual undoing of creation. 
It's a total upending of all things that create order. It's a disintegration. It's a dissolving of all things that are good. It's quite literally the disintegration of the cosmos. And this is just for free, but this is why prophets use apocalyptic language. We do weird stuff with apocalyptic language, especially Revelation, especially now. <laughs> but prophets use apocalyptic language for this reason, because they're showing us the disorder and disintegration of, of order and creation from God, right? So this is why symbols, cosmic symbols, like the sun going dark, the moon bleeding, sorry, John Hagee, the stars falling, wildlife decaying, and earthquakes. Everything Jeremiah just said is not talking about something that we should be looking for literally happening as signs of the times, but he's saying that this is the sign of the times when we are not in covenant relationship with God and in exile. He's saying there's this deserted wilderness that's happening here. That's where these prophetic apocalyptic images come in like Jeremiah shows us. So in a very real way, when Mark says this, the entire biblical story is a long story about wandering from home and searching for a way to get back there, right? And the key here is that exile starts as the national experience of Israel, but it quickly becomes a key motif of the universal experience of all humanity. The, the human experience of a not at homeness. The human experience of longing, of displacement, of restlessness is an internal and existential exile. That you and I, when we're honest with ourselves, we're homesick for somewhere we've never been. Our heart is desperately looking for something more or someone else. So for you and I, we need to ask the question, enter into this and ask, just like Israel would have, what is exile for you right now? How are you experiencing displacement, restlessness, loss, broken relationships, turmoil, anxiety and angst, lostness, hopelessness, sickness, this desperate pursuit for escapism, or this nagging feeling of needing to find yourself in that next thing, in that next job, in that next pursuit, in that next relationship, whatever it is. That's an, it's a, that's an exile of the heart. And here's the good news, that God does his best work. You gotta hear this. Not by keeping us from the wilderness, but by meeting us in it. That is the story of the Bible. That is the prophetic good news preached all throughout the Bible. That the, that the wilderness actually becomes a place where everything we looked to for life dies. And then we're only left with God to show us that all we had was God in the first place. And that's what's crazy about exile. Uh, the psalmist, King David, writes in Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, where? When I'm in the wilderness. That the wilderness actually has a way of undoing and taking away all the distractions of things that we looked to for comfort. And that wilderness only always ends in death and being really hot and really thirsty, unless what? unless God intervenes, unless God provides a way, unless God shows up. And that is the story of the whole Old Testament. That just when we think that the wilderness is gonna entirely just crush the people and it's gonna be the end of the story, God shows up. God shows up, he comes, he speaks, he makes a way, he builds a highway out of the wilderness. 
The people have come to the end of themselves. They have been enslaved by their own disobedience, by their own silliness, by their own idea of what would give them life. And God shows up and builds a highway out of it. The wilderness is where we're brought to see that God is all we need because God is truly all we have. This is the backdrop of what Mark is doing in this text. Because the wilderness doesn't just give us bad news, it also gives us this future promise of hope. It becomes a motif that is bad. It's like, oh, that's bad. Bad news. You're in exile. You're broken. You need rescuing. That's the bad news. The good news, though, is that there's hope because the rescuer is coming. There's hope because the rescuer always has given us a way out of the wilderness. There's hope because the rescuer will come again and get us out of exile. There is freedom for exiles. There is a return to home coming. There is good news for the restless. That's the good news here. And Mark is just taking all of this and laying an amazing canvas to to, to create the setting and the backdrop for John. So in all of that, enter John. And where is John? Well, John is in the wilderness, hanging out, wearing camel hair, with a leather belt, eating bugs with honey on it. Right, so he's hipsters, before hipsters were a thing, he's probably using ethically sourced beard oil, all that jazz, right? Kombucha, it's John, okay? But it's not random why we're told this. Like that would just be a weird thing. Like sometimes in scripture you're like, why tell us that? That's, that's interesting, he was weird, that's what you're telling us, right? He had a weird fashion sense. It's like, no, 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 it's very intentional. It's what I told you about Mark being brilliant in the way he pulls stuff together. This is exactly how Elijah the prophet is described in 2 Kings 18 as wearing camel garments of hair, which throws us to the garden, amen? Notice that? And a leather belt. It's telling us, he is telling us, hey, this promise from Malachi of the voice that's gonna come before the one who comes, it's John. And so it's just big flashing light. It's him, he's here, John is here. Now the other piece that's a historical backdrop for this, this is really interesting. Some of you guys have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, so in the first century BC, the priesthood, the Jewish priesthood had become very corrupt. And so there was a group of priests who left Jerusalem and moved out to Qumran, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in those caves, and created a new community, a new community altogether. And this is how they dressed. This is what they looked like. Some scholars think that John the Baptist was probably an Essene. That that, that was the name of this group. Others say that he similarly had shared views with the Essenes, uh, but there was a lot of significant differences with John as well. But what was really cool is that the Essenes were known for their dedication to scribal practices. They would sit and they would, they would copy scrolls. Every time the Lord's name was used, every time Yahweh was written or said, they would get up, like the writer, it took a long time, right? They, every time the Lord's name, imagine some texts, like it's just like, oh my gosh, I, Yahweh, Yahweh. <laughs> the writer's like, oh, twice, right? What they do is they get up and they'd walk over to something called a mikvah, okay? And it looked like this. And they'd walk over to the mikvah and they would go and they would walk into the mikvah and they would plunge themselves three times all the way submerged underwater and they would go back, probably dry themselves off and keep writing. And that's what they would do. So there's a really, really interesting thing. The mikvah was the ceremonial pool for being cleansed ritually. And the Essenes practiced this a lot, three times a day for different reasons, all sorts of reasons. We don't need to get into it. But that's what they used it for. That's the mikvah, okay? This is the mental picture of baptism when John shows up on the scene. But John's baptism is very different. That's what's very interesting here. So this would have been the mental picture for people. Oh yeah, kind of like the Essenes, going out and just like dumping, dunking ourselves. Like no one's getting dunked, right? Everyone's kind of crossing their arms, dunking themselves, submerging themselves in the water. But John's baptism was very different. Did you catch that? 
It's not actually for ritual purity, for uncleanliness. Did you notice that? But what was it for? What does it say? It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And notice who John is calling to be baptized. Baptism in that time was only for Jews to be ritually clean. And once they did it once, they were clean. So Jews actually didn't get baptized like this. Only Gentiles did, because it was a change of status from one people group to another. And still in certain places in the world, when you get baptized as a Christian, your family holds a funeral because you're dead. I mean, you just transferred your status from one family to an entirely other family, right? That was what was happening here. But notice that John is not talking about ritual cleanness here. John calls for everyone to be baptized, everyone. Now that's already radical because Jews didn't get baptized like this. Only Gentiles did. So John is totally just, just laying it out and, and evening the playing field like crazy here because Jews who already consider themselves ritually clean, John is saying, no, no, everyone needs to come to God on the same standard. Everybody needs to come to God on the same terms. You're not given a pass because of your moral record, because of your upbringing, because of your religious knowledge and how many theological things you can say and how many big isms you can tell people about. You're not saved by your race, your class, or your accolades, but by grace, through faith, demonstrated by repentance and baptism. To us, that sounds so normal, right? But it was so Radical. Priests and prostitutes standing in the Jordan together. Young and old standing in the Jordan together. Rich and poor standing in the Jordan together. Jew and Gentile standing in the Jordan together. Men and women standing in the Jordan together. Guys, unheard of. Very radical. Extremely offensive. But it leveled the playing field entirely because it was preparing the way for the one to come and save. You and I will never want or need good news until we first understand the bad news. And that's what John was doing. And notice he said, it says that he was, just, he was just proclaiming it, right? That's the word preach. He was just announcing this. He's like, it's not me. I'm not doing this. I'm just announcing it. What's really beautiful about this is that you and I can be a voice. You with me on that? Like, like the call to actually follow Jesus is just to be a voice, right? Just to be a witness. I mean, what do you witness to? Your own experience of something. What do you testify to? Something that's happened in you, something that you have been an eyewitness uh, to the change and transformation in your life, the resurrected Christ, the life that he's given you, that you and I can be a voice, amen? That's all we need to be. And some of us use our voices for all sorts of other stuff, talking about everything but this. And as Christians, we gotta come back to, our voice is supposed to be this. We just constantly proclaim and point back to the one who has prepared the way for us, the one who can save us. We gotta use our voice better. We gotta speak of the way and the way maker in Christ. And that's what John does and demonstrates for us perfectly. And notice that this is a repentance expressed by baptism. This is important for us because today we have to understand the significance of baptism on this side of the cross. It's actually a death to new life, right? It's actually that it's in Christ we died and then we are raised to new life. But baptism doesn't forgive us of sins or clean us of sin, but what it does do is it is a sign of our new birth and our identity and our status. So often we'll talk about baptism and stress it, not because it's the way to actually come into faith, but it is the way that we demonstrate that we have come to faith. And our baptism is not just individually a sign of us being saved, it's actually us committing to the new body itself, plural. And what's really cool about this text is that John uses plural you. And often, again, in our English, it's not helpful, but it's like you get baptized. It's like me? It's like yes, but he's actually saying plural, we get baptized. 
We get baptized. Why? Because it's not just about me and God. It's that we are now a new people. You with me on that? That we're a new family, that we're a new community, that we have a new communal identity. Like First Peter says, we're a priesthood of believers. We're, we're now come home together as sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters. Why? Because our good dad has rescued us. That's what baptism does. So baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. And if you notice in Acts 2, when Peter preaches his wicked sermon, and it says that everybody's cut to the heart, right? Everyone's like, okay, what was that? What was that that you just talked about? Because I want that, whatever that was. And he says, okay, here's how you respond. You repent and you get baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's be careful not to just like look at it here and not make it about you and I. Have you been baptized? Have you actually came into that decision and said, I'm going to go and commit myself. I'm gonna go and have an outward profession, a public declaration of something that's already happened internally. And if you haven't, Good news, we're gonna have our first baptism class in a while, since COVID for sure. Uh, and we're gonna have a baptism outdoors somewhere in an undisclosed location in water somewhere, okay? <laughs> so talk to us, please talk to Steve, John and I. We'd love to get you in, yeah, plugged into that, but keep your eyes open for that. Okay, and notice how many people are coming out to get baptized. Some commentators estimate that this was about a quarter of a million people coming from all Judea, rural communities, and urban center of Jerusalem. That's crazy. Like this is, this is we gotta remember, like history matters. This isn't just like 13 like country bumpkins being like, let's go to the Jordan, yeah. Right, like we're talking a quarter of a million people went out to get baptized by John. Like this is a big deal. So there's something happening. Like the ripple effect of this across Rome is already happening and Jesus hasn't even shown up to tell us who he is yet. Amazing. Now picture it though, a quarter of a million people leaving Jerusalem and all the countryside of Judea going to the Jordan. Does anybody see what's happening here? It is a brand new Exodus. That they're leaving where they were and they're going to Exodus. Do you remember where the Jordan stood? The Jordan stood between the wilderness and walking into what? The promised land. And they're walking out for a new Exodus. They're going out into the wilderness to be baptized in the Jordan River. You can't miss this. But notice that John says that's not the point. He says that his baptism is pointing to another baptism, that he will baptize you, plural, with the Spirit. Again, this is radical. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the Spirit only anointed who? Prophets, priests, and kings. And he just said, no, 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 this new covenant, this new move of the Spirit, this new identity, this new work, this new good news that is coming through the Son of God is going to be for all people. The prophet Joel does this the best where he says, he promises that in the new covenant, there will come a day where God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. It's very radical. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Male and female servants will be filled by the spirit. Crazy. And John's saying, new covenant's here. New law is here. New spirit is here. New identity is here. New community is here. New future for everyone who repents, confesses sin, and is baptized into this new identity. It's here. Amazing. Verse nine through 11. So now we're all anticipated, right? We're like, okay, it's here. What's happening? Watch this, verse nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth <laughs> of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Nothing special yet. But when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open 
And the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Oh yeah. So it's anticlimactic until it's not. You with me on that? It's anticlimactic because nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? That's just like, yeah, guys, really cool. Uh, They're gonna come from, and then you just name like the worst armpit of whatever place you come from, right? That's what's happening here. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. And who is this Jesus? This is what's happening here. This is an anticlimactic thing. But Mark just told us that the son of God, the Lord himself is arriving. And then he says, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus gets baptized. Now, why does Jesus get baptized? Because we know who Jesus is. Why does Jesus get baptized? You gotta understand, Jesus gets baptized to identify with all flesh to identify with people, men and women, Jew and Gentile, to identify with all people, not because he needed a cleansing of sin or forgiveness, but because he was the one that didn't need it and he was going to be the only one that faithfully represents both God and humanity, right? Remember last week, the image bearing idea, the son of God, that God in flesh. And notice the key word that the heavens were torn open. Now in Greek, this is the word schizo. It's a violent term. It's where we get schizophrenic, but it's a violent dividing of something, right? It's a a violent tearing of something. Now, notice it doesn't say the heavens were opened. Why is that significant? Well, because if you open something, you can close it, right? If you tear something, like if you close the door, you can just, you can open the door and close the door again. But if you tear the door off the hinges, you gotta go and actually fix that thing and put it back together. The heavens were not just opened when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were torn. And what's crazy about this is there's a scroll 200 years before Mark showed up called the Testament of Levi, not in scripture, but outside of scripture. But there was a scroll that was heavily circulated. We actually found some of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it said this, the heavens will be opened and from the temple of glory with a fatherly voice, the glory of the most high will burst forward upon him and the spirit will rest upon him in the water. Mark is like, that, that's happening. That's happening right here. In Jesus' baptism, quite literally, all heaven breaks loose. And what's really crazy about that is that whereas Moses, Joshua, and Elijah all saw waters part for them by the work of God, only Jesus sees the very fabric of heaven torn apart for him. And it evokes a really, really significant mental picture. What do you think it is? Something being torn. The curtain in the temple. It's exactly what's happening here. If you remember the tabernacle and then later the temple, it was designed as a mini Eden. All of the dimensions that you skip over in Exodus in your annual readings, it's all Eden, okay? So it's all just the garden. Uh, That's a different teaching. It's fun to to do it though. Um, But what it did, the tabernacle symbolized God's presence, right? It's where God and people met. That was the significance of the temple. The main thing, that was the main thing. But there was also a separation between God and people, right? So there's all these different layers of separation. So if you remember the wilderness outside the camp, right? And then the outer court and then the inner court, then the holy place and then the holy of holies, right? So there was this kind of circles, concentric circles of proximity to God's presence. And in the most holy place, the holy of holies, you remember the curtain. Now this wasn't just a curtain. This wasn't that, right? Okay, this was 10 inches thick and 60 feet tall. And it was pitch black in there. So there was like a, you don't get in here, right? Like you don't just run through a 10 foot wide curtain. You with me on that? Like you can barely get out of your weighted blanket, some of you, all right? So imagine there's like a cosmic weighted blanket and you, you run into it, it's like a brick wall and you hit that thing, right? Okay, that's the curtain. And behind that curtain, what was in there? The Ark of the Covenant. 
And the Ark of the Covenant, we don't have time, but the Ark of the Covenant specifically had the mercy seat on top, which represented the enthronement of God, God as king, that God ruled. And he was over the Ark of the Covenant and that's where his presence dwelt. And one day a year, the Super Bowl of all sacrifices, what was it? The Day of Atonement, the high priest, only him, would do all these, these different rituals to, to get clean, to clean the people, to clean himself. And they would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. For what? The forgiveness of the sins of all the people. And the very last part of the ritual, it's amazing. I wrote some of my doctoral thesis on this stuff. So if you wanna to talk to me, we can do nerdy stuff. But the last part of this ritual after cleansing the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies, the high priest would walk out and he would lay his hands on what? The scapegoat. And he would publicly, verbally confess all the sins of Israel on the scapegoat and send the, the scapegoat into where? The wilderness to die. The sins that God had already forgiven and borne on himself in his presence all year, one day a year, are removed from everyone's sight. The sins are taken and transferred and sent into the wilderness. All of that church is happening in this text and it would have been such a powerful scene. It would have been so powerful. And the same word that we see for Torin here is the same word that Mark uses in the very climax of the gospel in chapter 15, watch this. When Jesus is crucified and breathes his last breath. It's up here, yes. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Know why? Because it's 60 feet tall and there's no ladders. And when the centurion, the Roman guard who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last breath, he said, remember the whole book, who is this? The Roman centurion finally sees it and says, truly this man was the son of God. One commentator about this text says, in the overall structure of Mark, the baptism of Jesus anticipates everything at the end of the gospel. As Jesus breathes out his last breath and breathes out his spirit, the curtain in the temple is torn and the Roman centurion proclaims Jesus as the son of God, answering the question that's hung throughout the book for us, who is this? Who is this? And this is all done to say, amazingly and brilliantly in, in gorgeous writing, as Mark does. This is all done to say that heaven is now torn open, that the temple is no longer needed because God is with us. And God himself has dwelt among us, that God has taken up residence, that God has moved into the neighborhood, that in Jesus's baptismal event, in that moment, heaven is torn open, never to be closed back that there is something that has now changed for everyone, everywhere, for all time. It's Mark's way of saying everything has just changed. It's Mark's way of saying this is a new creation, that this is a new exodus. It's here. Amazing. Mind-blowing. And notice that the spirit comes down and hovers like a dove. Now, for, for us, this is like cute and it's familiar. We draw doves or we get dove tattoos. And we're like, mm, it's the Holy Spirit, right? Never mind. But this is familiar to us. This image of spirit as dove is familiar to us, but it wouldn't have been there in the first century. Why? Because there's only one mention of the spirit being like a dove, and it wasn't in scripture. It was in, in sorry, it wasn't in the Hebrew Bible. It was in the Targums, which was the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible. Okay? Tracking? Good. 
Glad you're excited about that part. But the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament called the Targums, watch this. In Genesis 1, when the Spirit hovers over the waters, you remember in Genesis 1 verse 2, right? Watch how the Targums writes it. Watch this. Earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered, okay, wings, above the face of the water like a dove. And God spoke, let there be light. This is crazy. Mark is taking the Targums and bringing it in here. And he's showing us that the same three active players in creation, God, God's spirit, and God's word are active in Jesus' baptism. That the father speaks, he's the voice. That the son is the word in flesh. And that the spirit comes to confirm all of it. Amazing. Are you excited? Good, same. Mark is pointing back to the beginning of history to show us that this is the new beginning of a new history. It's amazing. And then God speaks and he says, this is my son whom I love and with you, singular, I am well pleased. This is why I bugged you about the plural. That that we, plural, but you, singular, to Jesus. Now here's what's crazy. No prophet, priest, or king was ever called son of God like this. This is why it's radical. The first thing that God says, church, after 400 years of saying nothing, is to Jesus. It's to say that you're my son. It's to say that you're the one. It's to say that you're, you are the son of God. It's to say that you are the one who's gonna make a way. And you, in you, I am well pleased. What had Jesus done up to this point? Tell me, what has he done? How many miracles had he done? Zero. How many times had he preached? Zero. What has he done up to this point? Nothing. And it is totally wrapped up in the grace of God and this Trinitarian community of Father, Son, and Spirit that we see this self-giving love take place and show up and become embodied and enfleshed in the person of Jesus. This is the gospel, that God loves Jesus before he does anything, just like he loves you and I before we do anything. And in Christ, God says to you and I that you are loved, that you are my daughter, that you are my son, that I'm happy with you, that I'm pleased with who you are, not with what you've done, and I'm not displeased with what you have not done, that I'm actually for you because you're mine, you're fully known, you're fully loved. I'm pleased with you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel writ small right here in these pages. Put your name at the front of that and listen to how it sounds. And listen to how bad your heart will kick back on that. Your heart will push back on that. No, no, he can't be. And then you'll, you'll come up with reasons, guilt and shame as to why he can't be pleased with you. And we'll run quickly into religion and legalism or, or we'll just run, see, see the extent of our heart where we don't even wanna be known, fully known and fully loved. There's so, something so powerful here that before you and I do anything, before you and I accomplish anything, while you are doing nothing, God sees you. God loves you, that he's pleased with you. Because he looks at you and he sees Christ. And today in our culture, so lost on where we're supposed to find an identity and so desperate for acceptance and validation and approval and love, the gospel is summed up, church, by what God says to Jesus right here. And it changes everything. So does anything you need to hear this morning? It's not the Targums, although that's fun. Does anything you need to hear there's something so key about the gospel that we forget so often and that the gospel is simply that what God said to Jesus that day is what he says to you and I today. That you're fully loved, that you're fully known, that we can experience adoption as sons and daughters. 
that the primary metaphor of the gospel is adoption, right? If you remember Galatians 4 through 5, the opposite of slavery is not freedom. The opposite of slavery is what? Adoption. It's a brand new identity. It's freedom from slavery to sin and independence from God, but it's also freedom to a new identity and dependence upon God and a new family. The gospel is nothing less than the true story of a God that rescues his kids and brings them home. And that's what happens here. Even though we've run off, even though we've ignored him, even though we've wasted everything, even though we've gone and done things that we have no business doing, he chases us down. He loves us, he changes us, he restores us and brings us home. And we get to respond to that. And in verse 12 through 13, this needs way more time, but we're running out of time. And you guys don't let me preach for two hours, so it's your fault. Verse 12 through 13, watch this, after the baptism. And the spirit immediately, remember Mark's favorite word? Immediately drove Jesus out into the where? Into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by the tempter. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Here's why this is significant. The spirit himself drives him into the wilderness. Some of you haven't been driven into any wilderness yet. So your self-sufficiency or your moral accolades or you just being better than the other person. But right here, the spirit himself actually drives Jesus into the wilderness. So why? So that he can actually succeed where you and I fail. As the representative, as the one who is gonna represent both God and humanity perfectly without failing, that we need him to do this. And if you notice the 40 days, that co- co- corresponds to Moses at Sinai, right? Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, Elijah as well. And just like Genesis, this is crazy. The spirit hovers over the water in Genesis. God speaks the world into being, a brand new world. History begins. He gives human beings their identity. But what happens? Well, they're tempted in the wilderness and they go out into the wilderness because they choose independence from God and they invite chaos and destruction, sin and death. But here, watch this. The spirit hovers over a different body of water. God speaks a very different word. A new humanity is announced in Jesus and Jesus himself is driven into the wilderness to be tempted only to succeed everywhere where you and I fail. Told you Mark is brilliant. But Mark doesn't give us any details on the temptation itself. Matthew does, you can read that this week. Matthew details exactly what that temptation looked like, what the testing period that Jesus went through looks like. But real quickly, it's the exact same categories of Genesis that we see in Matthew. In Matthew 4, we see that Jesus is tempted to turn stones to bread. What is that? Well, it's good for food. It's the temptation in the garden. It's good for food. It's good for you. He's also tempted and tested to be given all the splendor of all the kingdoms of the world. What's that? Well, it's a delight to the eyes. It's power. And third, an angelic enthronement he's tempted with. And that's pride. That's be like God. And notice that Mark tells us one thing. Uh, Sorry, Matthew tells us one thing that's very important, that all of these are tempting Jesus to abandon his identity as the son of God. If you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do this. Three times. And Jesus responds perfectly. The enemy calls into question Jesus's identity as representative of both God and humanity. Because why? If Jesus fails, guess what? He's no different than Adam and Eve. He's no different than you and me. He's not our representative. He cannot be our priest and bring us back into the presence of God. But he responds perfectly. He responds perfectly by saying, it is written. So the the lie of the garden, but did God really say? And Jesus responds and says, it is written. Did God really say? Jesus responds, he did. (laughs) 
And here's what he said. And Jesus stands perfectly in the wilderness as the representative, the only one who can stand between the wilderness and home, the only one who can stand in the Jordan where thousands, hundreds of thousands of others have come and their sin and confession and filth. And he goes into that water and stands between the wilderness and the new promised land. And he invites everyone, everyone to draw near to God and come into God's presence to be fully known and fully loved. Last but not least, remember the order of the Exodus. Remember that God doesn't ride into Egypt and give them the law. He doesn't ride into Egypt, give them the law and say, do this or I'll stone you, right? He rides into Egypt, he rescues them from slavery, frees them from that, and then what? Gives them the law to protect the freedom that he has just purchased for them by his own blood, by his own power, by his own work. He rescues Israel, then gives them the law. It's grace freely given, then law to protect the freedom and grace that they've received. And it's always the order. It's always the order across scripture that God saves first, that God rescues first, that God changes hearts first. And we repent and turn, right? Confession of sin, we repent, we turn away from the way we've been going back to the way that God has paved out for us in the wilderness. And then he shows us the way to live according to that grace and protects us in that. That's always the order. The gospel is this, that Christ comes to us because we can't get to God on our own that we can't keep the law, that we can't just go after life and find it and be fruitful and multiply and flourish without him. And then he draws us near to bring us to God. And Jesus is the one that he does it through. And Hebrews 4 captures this perfectly. And this is last, I'll leave you with this. I promise this time, for real. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, talking about Jesus. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted who has experienced the wilderness, yet without sin, without failure in any way. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Brothers and sisters, we have a gospel that covers all the sin that we uncover, amen? We have a gospel big enough to cover all the sin that we uncover, but the sin that we do not uncover cannot be covered by the grace of God. And this is an opportunity for us to not just look at a physical baptism and consider our own, but also to look spiritually and say that we still need Jesus to cover the sin that we uncover. That our new life is only for those of us who let go of our old life. That our new identity as sons and daughters adopted to the king is only when we let go of any other identity, every other label, every other ism, every other thing that would make it into our mouth to say, here's who we are, needs to be replaced by this gospel identity. That the new way to live is for all of us who die to the old way of living. And the good news in all of this is that God doesn't love us any less when we fail because that's not riding on us, amen? That was already taken care of in his son, the son, the God-man, the God who stood between the wilderness and the promised land and made a way for us to go home. But the flip side of that is that he also doesn't love you anymore when you do succeed. So if you had a good week this week, God's not like, finally, I'm very impressed with you. <laughs> that was never a pressure for you and I in the first place. That in Christ, our identity is not wrapped up in our performance at all but that we're free from the pressure of performance and then we get to go and live. And then when sin, 
when failure, when laziness, when nonsense, when stupidity comes in, because it does, anyone? We get to go and confess freely and stand again in the Jordan between the wilderness and between the promised land and we get to walk across it and go home because the way has been made for us. Jesus is able to empathize with us because empathy is an expression of the incarnation and Jesus is God himself incarnated to us. So today I think that's what we need to hear as we look at Jesus's role in this as Mark is just bringing us on this wild roller coaster of who Jesus is. But today let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, not in ourself, not in things we, we believe, not in our theology, not in, in our experience, not in, in any good things, but also let, let us not have our approach to the throne of grace be hindered by anything that didn't go well this week. Let me pray for us to that end and let's worship to that end together. Father, we're so thankful for the freedom that we don't need to perform. That we don't need to perform for you. We don't need to perform for others. That Lord, our own criticism of ourselves, criticism that comes from outside of ourselves, that Lord, we can freely lay down at the throne of grace. And you said that there's more grace and more mercy for us, not because of us, but despite us. I'm just so thankful that you saw it fit that because of your great love for us, you sent your son to come and rescue us and make us sons and daughters. And I pray that today you would just apply it fresh to our heart and our mind. I pray that we would repent. We would be a repentance culture in this church, that we would get good, not at hiding our, our flaws and our weaknesses and pretending and smiling, but that we would get really good at creating spaces for grace and confessing and repenting well, and then celebrating the life that we have in you together. I pray that as we sing, as we worship to that end, I pray that as we confess and pray to that end, I pray that spirit, you would come and change our heart and renew our mind and continue to enable us and empower us to live the new life you have purchased for us in Christ. We humbly and so gratefully thank you and love you and need you. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.